It wasn't too many months ago when our country was mesmerized by a story on the news from back in the Midwest in Ohio, a story about some young gals who had been captured uh, just as youngsters and held for years and years, and they finally got away, were released, and the stories came out about how they had been brutalized in a number of ways and treated, and of course the story has been recently sort of brought up again as they are coming forward with their stories. Uh, of course, the man who uh, committed all these crimes hung himself in, while he was in incarceration. And as we watched and heard and listened to all of those things, uh, it, was, it was horrific. No other word for it. Just indescribably horrendous what had taken place for years and years. Maybe that serves as an illustration for the fact that one of the worst experiences possible for any human being would be to be in bondage of some kind. But often when we hear the word bondage, our minds understandably think only of physical incarceration or physical restraint of some kind. However, as terrible as that is, I'm not sure that's the worst kind of bondage possible. The worst kind of bondage is bondage of the heart, soul, mind, and spirit. You see, there have been many people who have survived and even thrived in circumstances of physical bondage because they weren't enslaved in their hearts or minds, souls, spirits, however you want to phrase it. But you cannot live well. You cannot live a healthy life if you are enslaved in your heart, your soul, your mind, your spirit. That is why Jesus came to grant us freedom. In John 8, 31 and 32, he said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Sadly, the, va the vast majority of the Jewish people to whom Jesus was speaking on that occasion only wanted external freedom. They wanted freedom from the oppressive Roman government. They wanted freedom from their less-than-ideal circumstances. But Jesus told them there in John 8 that the real issue is not those externals because you can be free externally but enslaved internally. Just think about how many people in our own nation are in that very condition. Free politically, free externally, but slaves internally. So Jesus offered true freedom, genuine freedom. But amazingly, shockingly, when some people are exposed to that freedom, for some reason... They want to turn back to their bondage. This is one of the great mysteries of human experience. Why do some people seem to prefer bondage to liberty? There was a group of people in the New Testament era who were like this. In fact, they have a book of the Bible named after them. We call that book Galatians. During Paul's first missionary journey, he evangelized several cities in the region of South Galatia. We see this in Acts 13, 13 through 14, 23. 
Upon returning from this journey, Paul received word that the believers were being led astray by teachers who were saying that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ plus the works of the law. To give you an example of this kind of thing, turn with me by way of introduction to Acts chapter 15. Before we look at the letter of Galatians, Acts chapter 15. This chapter is about a monumental event in the life of the early church, and it is often called the Jerusalem Council. You see, there was a group of Jewish believers called Judaizers who wanted to find all the Christians they could, gather all the Christians they could, to tack on Judaism to their salvation. So the apostles and elders had to come together to wrestle through this issue. By the way, this kind of thing has continued to be an issue down through the centuries. There have always been those who want to tack something on to the message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. As an example, Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of what is today called the United Church of God, he used to teach when he was alive that we are saved by faith in Christ plus keeping the Ten Commandments. The Church of Christ, which has been very aggressive here in our area, teaches that we are saved by faith in Christ plus baptism. But any teacher who tries to add something to the message of salvation by grace through faith alone is setting himself in direct opposition to the decision of the Holy Spirit and the apostles as set forth in the Jerusalem Council of this 15th chapter of Acts. Notice how it opens. Verse 1 says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, you have to become Jewish first and conform to the law if you're going to really be saved. When Paul and Barnabas heard that, they resisted immediately. You see, Paul knew what he believed on this issue. He knew where he stood. The evidence points to the fact that he had already written the book of Galatians by this time. And in Galatians 5, 6, he said, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith. That's the message Paul and Barnabas had been preaching, had been declaring. So when the Judaizers came along teaching that to become a Christian... You have to first become a Jewish proselyte. Paul and Barnabas resisted them. Verse 2 says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. They knew this matter had to be settled once and for all. The Jerusalem church was the mother church, in a sense, and, understandably, it was almost exclusively Jewish. It's right in the heart of of the land of Israel, the capital city. Paul and Barnabas decided to go there to settle the matter because they knew that for the decision to be respected by Jewish Christians, not only those in Israel but around the world, it had to come from the Jerusalem church, not the Antioch church. Paul and Barnabas weren't afraid to go there to settle this issue, even though, 
Again, understandably, the church would be very Jewish in its orientation. They were confident in their position, so off they went. Verse 4 says, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, now notice, very strict Jews who believed, that is, they believed the gospel, they believed in Christ, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, before you come down too hard on these Jewish believers, you need to put yourself in their sandals. I, Howard Marshall, has written this, quote, There is nothing surprising about their old attitudes carrying over. We probably underestimate what a colossal step it was for a dyed-in-the-wool Jewish person to adopt a new way of thinking. Moreover, it is possible that nationalist pressure was increasing in Judea and that Christians were having to tread carefully to avoid being thought of as disloyal to their Jewish heritage, end quote. Those are some good insights. I mean, think about it. If you had been raised rightly, properly, if you had been raised to protect and defend and obey the law of Moses, you would have a hard time just letting go of all of that for a new covenant. After all, the law of Moses, as it's often referred to, and we often refer to it, was actually the law of God. Just the law of God given through Moses. So we're talking about the law of God. And you don't want to treat the law of God as something trivial or insignificant. Furthermore, circumcision could be traced all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. All the way back to Genesis. Way before the law. So I can appreciate the zeal of these Jewish believers, but their zeal was misguided. It was not accurate. It was not God's intention to impose on the Gentiles the law of Moses. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. That was the position the Jerusalem Council affirmed, but prior to the council, Paul was already battling this issue. After he went throughout South Galatia preaching the gospel, the Judaizers came behind him. Now think about this. Think about how much zeal they had. They actually followed Paul around. They came behind him, and they would visit whatever city or town or village he was just in, and they would say, salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we agree with Paul's message. We're glad he came here. We're glad he's spreading the gospel. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, plus the works of the law. Needless to say, this disturbed Paul greatly. So he sat down and personally wrote the letter to the Galatians. Let's turn to it together over Pass Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians to Galatians and look at chapter 6 to begin with. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. That's a significant statement. Paul's normal method was to dictate his letters to a secretary or a stenographer or an amanuensis is the technical title. Paul's normal method was to dictate his letters, as we see in verses like Romans 16, 22. 
But Paul was so upset over this matter, so disturbed that he personally wrote the letter to the Galatians. And in fact, this may have been the only letter he actually wrote with his own hand. His other letters he signed at the end with his own signature to verify their contents, but he wrote this letter himself. It seems quite obvious that Paul wrote Galatians sometime prior to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, because if the Jerusalem Council had already taken place, then Paul would have doubtless referred to it in the letter since the subject of the two was identical. Therefore, I lean toward a date of the letter to the Galatians around A.D. 49, or if you want around number, you could say around 50. The theme of this book is a defense of the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. We cannot be saved by keeping the Mosaic, keeping the Mosaic law, nor, nor, don't miss this one, nor can we live the Christian life by striving to keep the Mosaic law. This is such a crucial point to emphasize because some groups, like Messianic congregations, that would be Christians, but Messianic in the sense that they're Jewish in their orientation, many of them teach that although we aren't saved by keeping the law, we are sanctified by keeping the law. We come to faith in Christ for salvation, then we live by the law. But the fact of the matter is that we are not even under the Mosaic Law, period. Look at chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 24. Paul says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, now watch this, we are no longer under a tutor. That says it as clearly as it can be said. We are not under the tutor of the law. We are free to live for Christ. That's the message of Galatians. For this reason, the letter has been called the Charter of Christian Liberty. It declares our freedom in Christ and Christ alone. All groups, all doctrines, all teachers, which assert anything other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, are condemned by this tremendous letter. In fact, look at what Paul says back in chapter 1, his opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Now, Paul, did you really mean to say that? It sounds pretty harsh. Is that what you meant to say? Well, verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Because of the great emotion Paul felt over this issue, the style of Galatians is one of immense urgency. You, you can hear the emotion in Paul's words right from the get-go. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I marvel. I'm shocked. I'm stunned. I'm amazed that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So mark it well. Any gospel, and I, I put that term in quotes, any gospel other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a different gospel. It's a different one than the one our Lord Jesus gave to Paul 
to preach and dispense to the church. With that in mind, let's back up here and begin our survey of this book so we can better understand the true gospel. The first two chapters of this letter, of course when Paul wrote it, there were no chapter divisions, but now in our English versions we have these chapter divisions. The first two chapters have a great deal of information in them about the Apostle Paul himself. And that begs the question, why is that? Why is it so personal? Why would Paul write so much about himself in a letter that is supposed to be defending the grace gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Here's the answer. Because Paul was the apostle of grace. He was the great defender of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So he himself was all intertwined in this issue. That's why he spends so much time talking about himself, his apostleship, and his message in these first two chapters. In the first ten verses, he writes about his call and as, as an apostle. Notice how he opens the letter. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Now watch this. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul makes it clear that his call to be an apostle was by the resurrected Christ. It wasn't his idea. You know the story. Paul's headed to Damascus to persecute the church. And he's struck to the ground, intercepted by the, by the resurrected Christ. He's saved and appointed to be an apostle. Paul wasn't an apostle by his own doing. The glorified Christ appointed him to his position. Not only that, it was the glorified Christ who gave Paul his message. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, implied by man, by any human teacher, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this is really a powerful point in Paul's letter. He makes it clear that his grace gospel of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, did not come from himself. It did not originate with him. It came directly Direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone did not come from or originate with Paul. It came from Jesus himself. Paul's message was not human opinion, human thought. It was divine truth. And because it was divine truth, it was affirmed by the other apostles and spiritual leaders in the mother church in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might, might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. In other words, the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem did not compel Titus to be circumcised, even though he was a Gentile, a Greek, because they knew that Titus was already saved. He didn't need to be circumcised to be saved. And he didn't need to be circumcised to be sanctified. But as we saw earlier, there were those in the first century church who were teaching such things, and as a result... They were leading people into spiritual bondage. 
In verse 4, Paul says, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So how did Paul and the other spiritual leaders respond to this? Verse 5, he says, To whom we did not yield a th- we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. In other words, Paul would not back down. He knew the gospel message that had been given to him from the Lord by direct revelation. So he wasn't about to budge one inch. In fact, this was so important to Paul that when Peter's actions began to send a confusing message about these things, Paul rebuked him. Verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Well, what did he do? For before certain men came from James, now that's a reference to the Jerusalem church. James is mentioned in Acts 15 as one of the key spiritual leaders, devoutly Jewish, half-brother of Jesus, as Jewish as you can be, So before certain men came from James, you could say, before certain men came from the mother church in Jerusalem, Peter would sit and eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, that is, the Jewish believers. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. You see what was happening here? When devout Jewish Christians came on the scene, Peter changed his habits. Before they came, he used to eat with Gentiles because he knew that the law had been set aside. It had been fulfilled by Christ and set aside for the new covenant. And he knew that the dietary laws were no longer an issue. He could eat with Gentiles. He could eat what Gentiles eat. Peter knew that. But When these devout Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came on the scene, Peter was afraid that they might think differently, that they might have a different perspective. So he pulled away from the Gentile Christians. He wouldn't eat with them. This really bothered Paul because he knew it was sending a confusing message. It sent the message that the law really had not been set aside and that the middle wall of partition still existed between Jew and Gentile. Needless to say, Paul didn't like that one bit. So in verse 14, he says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Peter's actions were saying to the Gentiles that to really be clean before God, If you really want to be clean before God, you need to live like Jews under the law. That is a false gospel. So in verse 16, Paul says, Knowing that a man is not not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That was Paul's message. By the way, it was Peter's message also. It was. It's just that Peter allowed himself to be intimidated by devout Jewish 
Christians who may not have been as clear in their thinking about these issues. He allowed himself to be intimidated and swept into this, but his message, his message was the same as Paul's. Down in verse 19, Paul says, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. That is a key statement in the context of this book. We need to understand that we are not free from the law so we can live any way we want to live. We aren't free from the law so we can throw ourselves into a life of sin. We are free from the law, as Paul says here, so we can live for God, so we can live for Christ. You say, well, that sounds a little strange to say we're free from the law so we can live for God. Not really. Think about it this way. If you believe you are under the law, then your focus is on the law and living to fulfill the law. But when you realize that you're not under the law, that frees you up to set your focus on the Lord, not on the law, not on regulations, not on certain uh, stipulations. In fact, listen to what Paul said. I love the way he said it to the Romans. He said this, Romans 7, 4, such a powerful illustration. He says this, he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, here it is, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Paul says, I died to the law, not so I could live any way I want to live. I died to the law so I could be married to Christ. Now let me ask you a question. It's an obvious question, obvious answer. Which is more compelling? Which is a greater motivation for holiness of life? To say you're under the law or you're married to Christ? The answer is obvious. It's far more compelling to say, I am united with Christ. That is what compels me. That's what motivates me. Not I'm under a set of rules, the regulations, the law. I am joined to Christ. So that's one of the key issues that Paul wants us to understand in Galatians. So chapters 1 and 2 are our defense of the grace gospel that Paul preached and was given to him by the Lord Jesus through direct revelation. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul begins to explain this gospel in greater detail. Portions of this section of the letter are very polemic in tone. What I mean is, Paul uses several arguments, lines of reasoning to demonstrate the foolishness of turning away from the grace gospel to the legalistic message of the Judaizers. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The answer to that question is obvious. We, we don't receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law. We can't earn the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit, merit Him in some way. The Holy Spirit is given as a gift to those who place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point Paul is trying to get them to face. He says in verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The Galatians had begun by simple faith in Christ, but now they were beginning to believe they should try to mix in the works of the law. Paul says that's foolish. Their own experience demonstrated the foolishness of turning away from the grace gospel to the legalistic message of the Judaizers. Now again, beloved, I want to emphasize this point. I want to emphasize what Paul says here in verse 3 because, again, 
Messianic congregations will say that the only issue addressed in the book of Galatians is the error of trying to be justified by keeping the law. But here, Paul addresses the error of trying to be sanctified by keeping the law. He says, having begun in the Spirit, do you think you're going to be made perfect by the flesh or the works of the law? So he's addressing not only how do we come into the family of God, but how do we live in the family of God? And he is saying that neither is by the law. Both are foolish, says Paul. Next, Paul uses the example of Abraham to make his point. In verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is a really powerful point. How was Abraham saved? That's the issue Paul is getting at. How was Abraham saved? He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone. This is a quote from Genesis 15, 6. And if you know your chronology of the Bible, the law wasn't even around in Genesis 15. So Paul's point is that it is foolish to turn away from the grace gospel to the legalistic message of the Judaizers. Next, Paul turns to the law itself. In chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 11, he basically tells the Galatians five things about the law. Five sort of bullet points. Number one, he says the law brings about a curse. Verse 10, for as many as are... are Many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So why would anyone want to go back under the law? The law brings about a curse. Secondly, he says, the law is inferior to the covenant of promise. God made covenant promises to Abraham, and it wasn't until 430 years later that the law was added. The law is inferior to the covenant of promise. Thirdly, he says, the law was given to lead us to faith. We saw that in verse 22, where he says that the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law was given to reveal our sin so we will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And then fourthly, he says, the law cannot bring about sonship. Verse 26, he says, for you are all sons of God. How? By the law? No, through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the only way to become a child of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. The law cannot bring about sonship. And then fifthly, he says, the law brings about bondage. In chapter 4, verse 9, he says, But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. What a shame. They had been set free from sin and from the law to live for Christ, but they were turning back to bondage. Near the end of this chapter, Paul uses an Old Testament story as an allegory to show them how foolish that is. Notice how he does this down in verse 21. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, <coughs> do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. 
But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who was of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, here's his point, so then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman but of the free. Why would anyone want to be a child of the bondwoman when the child of the bondwoman was rejected? doesn't make sense. And Paul is saying, neither does it make sense that some people want to go back under the law. And that brings us to the final section of the book, chapters 5 and 6, in which Paul applies what he has been teaching. This is the exhortation section of the letter. As you read through it, it seems to sort of solidify into, at least I, for me, I, I've outlined all these exhortations in five categories. Final exhortations in five categories. Here they are. Number one, stand fast in liberty. Chapter 5, verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What Paul is saying is, don't look to the law, because when you do, that gets your focus off of Christ, and you fall away from him. In verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you've fallen from grace. That's not saying you will lose your salvation. It's saying when you put your focus on the law and you focus on it, then that gets your focus off Christ and you fall away from him. So stand fast in liberty. That's exhortation one. Number two, love one another. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. As I said earlier, we haven't been set free to live any way we want to live. We've been set free to live for Christ and to love one another. That's the second category of exhortation. Thirdly, walk in the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 16, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Christian life is not about trying to obey the law. The Christian life is about walking with the Lord, walking in the Spirit. And when we do, the Spirit gives us power for victory over sin. Sin, as you well know, is an internal battle. And it can't be conquered by observing external rules and re regulations and rituals. That is not the way to defeat sin. It's only conquered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. As a silly illustration of it, Here's how it works when you focus on the law and, and the commands of the law that say, don't do this, don't do this. Uh, it works like this, just to illustrate how it, it really doesn't give us power to conquer sin. Here's the illustration. Are you, are you ready for this? Don't think of a pink elephant. What are you doing? You're thinking of a pink elephant. Don't think of a pink elephant. That doesn't work. That's the way it is when we try to go under the law. Don't, don't, don't. And that's... Then it just prompts us to do. The problem is not the law, however. 
problem is in our own flesh. So sin is not conquered by looking to a list of rules and regulations. Therefore, we are told to walk in the Spirit and to allow Him to produce the character of Christ in our lives, the character that's described in verses 22 and 23, some of the most famous verses in this letter. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. There's no law. In other words, there's no statement saying, oh, don't be like that. It's the opposite. That's the way we ought to be. So, the fourth exhortation, abound in service. That's the message of the first ten verses of chapter 6. Abound in service. Well, what does that mean? Well, we serve by restoring Christians who are trapped in sin. Verse 1, brethren, if any man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So we serve by restoring Christians who have sinned. We serve by bearing one another's burdens. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We serve in a number of different ways. And that's why Paul says down in verse 9, And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So abound in service. And then fifthly, the fifth exhortation that permeates this final section of Galatians is glory in the cross. Chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We don't glory in the law. Nor should we have a, a derogatory view of the law. The law had a purpose. It served its purpose. It was good. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, the law was glorious, but the new covenant's even more glorious. So we don't look disparagingly at the law of God. We just recognize that it had its purpose. It was fulfilled by Christ, by his life, by his teaching, by his death. And now he instituted the new covenant. So we don't glory in the law. We glory in the cross of Christ because the cross is the instrument of our salvation, not the law. Verse 15 says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but being a new creation. As I said just a moment ago, so much of the law only deals with external issues like circumcision and a list of don'ts. But that's not really the issue. The real issue is the heart and being a new creation in the heart. And only the cross of Christ can change the heart. So glory in the cross. That's the message of Galatians. Paul says it this way. Listen as we close to this statement by Paul in Romans. Again, quoting from Romans, this time chapter 10, verse 4, where he says this. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You cannot have positional righteousness before God by keeping the law. And you can't have sanctifying righteousness before God by keeping the law. As I said at the beginning of the message, this kind of thing has continued to be an issue down through the centuries. There have always been those who want to tack something on to the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But like the Apostle Paul, we need to stand without compromise for the grace gospel. Because only it 
has the power to free us from sin and to free us to really live for Christ. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you that freedom, freedom is something that you desire for us. But we acknowledge that it's very easy for us to be misguided or misfocused in what freedom really is. Especially here in our country where there is so much emphasis on political freedom or social freedom, societal freedom. And there is so little emphasis on true internal, spiritual, heart freedom. But you desire us to be free. Even if we're enslaved, you desire us to be free. Free from sin, free from self, free from bondage, so that we can live for Christ. We are always amazed when we read your word about believers in the first century who were slaves, but yet were free to live for Christ and could experience true internal freedom. How rare that is today. Certainly, we, we look around our own country, Father, and we see so many people who every year on the 4th of July celebrate national freedom, political freedom, and so many of those people are enslaved, enslaved to habits, enslaved to fears, enslaved to memories, enslaved to drugs, alcohol, promiscuity, whatever it is, celebrating freedom while being in bondage. Father, we are grateful that your Son, the Lord Jesus, has provided a way for us to have true, internal, genuine, eternal freedom. And may we, as Paul expressed in the letter of Galatians, may we stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. Thank you that you have freed us, not to live any way we want to live, not certainly not to live selfishly or to live for self. You have freed us to live for Christ. And may we live for him faithfully until the day he calls us home, whether that is through death or through translation when he descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangels and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ rise first. And we who are alive and remain are caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Whichever the case, may we faithfully live for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.